Welcome to the public morality. The state of Mississippi has been rocked by a welfare scandal that has fleeced tens of millions from funds earmarked for its low-income residents. It is a scandal complete with high-profile names that go all the way to the governor's mansion. Joining me today is Anna Wolf, investigative reporter who writes for Mississippi Today. Beginning in 2020, she has doggedly covered the state's welfare scandal. Anna Wolf, welcome to the public morality. Thank you for having me. I want to begin by having you unpack the Mississippi welfare fraud, which seems like the more we talk about it, it increasingly becomes a web of intrigue. What can you tell us thus far? So we really found out, um, you know, at the start of what happened in 2020, when the auditor's office arrested six people in connection with the theft of $4 million in funds from this federal program called Temporary Assistance for Needy Families. At that point, we knew that it was just the tip of the iceberg. The auditor was pretty clear that this was the largest public embezzlement scheme in state history and that there were going to be new revelations, new names, um, new uh, purchases that we would learn about in the coming months. Um, pretty early on, we were able to connect Brett Favre because in the indictments against uh, two of these six individuals, there was a company named that had received $2 million in stolen welfare funds, and that company was called Prevacus, which is a um, pharmaceutical startup company that was developing a cure to treat concussions. Brett Favre was investing in this company and promoting it and even talking to state officials about getting public support for this company uh, to try to kind of try to lure it to Mississippi. Um, pretty shortly after that, we were able to uh, discover that $5 million in TANF money went to build a volleyball stadium at Brett Favre's alma mater and also realized that he had been discussing this project with officials at the state. Um, and then the project eventually received welfare money. So fast forward two years and the, the kind of national media is, is really just kind of coming to this story. Um, but of course it spans, you know, all across the uh, government and the welfare agency. It's much larger than Brett Favre. There was almost a hundred million dollars found to have been misspent. That's mostly out of TANF, but also some other block grant funds that were found to be misspent by auditors. And um, it's been sort of a trickle of information, you know, out since since then over the last two and a half years. Um, but really the, the main players and, and really uh, higher up officials like Phil Bryant, who oversaw the welfare department during this time, have sort of um, evaded responsibility. Um, they haven't been charged. Um, uh, Phil Bryant hasn't faced any kind of official uh, allegations of wrongdoing. And so that's kind of where we stand today with some text messages and more information coming out that shows Phil Bryant and Brett Favre's involvement in spending these welfare dollars this way. I want to get some clarification on something because um, most of the news sources that I have uh, read cite the number at 70 million. I've seen you on previous interviews and you sort of alluded to it in your first answer um, that it's it's 92 million. What's your best guess at the amount we're actually looking at? Your best guess. 
I, I think that if you're counting other funds outside of just TANF, because the 77 million number comes from a forensic audit that just looked at the time period 2016 to 2020 and found 77 misspent from temporary assistance for needy families, the auditor, the state auditor, looked previously at a, a broader bucket of money than that, and that's where that $98 million comes from. Um, I think that if you went back further, if you went further back than 2016, you'd probably find a lot more misspending based on the um, metrics that the auditor is using for what constitutes a TANF purchase. But um, I think keeping it around that 100 million number is is accurate and um, it, it probably encompasses the bulk of what we're talking about. Okay. Uh, I want to I wanna, uh, discuss uh have you talk about some of the key players that have that um, some of the notable names that that, we, that we've been talking about that that sort of uh, gave this national legs, if you will. Let's start with John Davis, form, John Davis, former executive director of Mississippi Department of Health and Human Services. Talk about his role. So John Davis was a longtime, like lifelong DHS employee. He started out at a local county office and just worked his way up finally to the state office, and then was appointed as director by Phil Bryant in 2016. He really was kind of a yes man is how I've described him. So he was willing to spend money in the ways that his boss and other powerful people around him wanted the money to be spent. Um, he was um, uh, working with these WWE wrestlers that he had brought into the fold, into the welfare agency and was paying them a lot of money to do things like um, provide professional development trainings across the state and um, supposedly to run services and, and um, programs for inner city youth. Uh, but there's very little evidence that those programs actually did anything for anyone. So um, he ended up paying out um, either through the department or through nonprofits, $5 million to this WWE family. Um, uh, Ted DiBiase, the million dollar man is what he was called in the WWE and his two sons. Um, that is what he's being charged with right now, federally, federally. And he actually pled guilty to those charges uh, a couple weeks ago. He was charged initially with uh, defrauding the state by giving this relatively small contract to one of the wrestlers uh, to provide opioid addiction education across the state. Uh, meanwhile, the wrestler was actually in rehab himself, so he wasn't conducting the work under the contract. And his rehab stay, which was at a luxury treatment facility in Malibu, was also paid for with welfare funds, um, about $160,000 all told. Now, that was a relatively small piece of the larger scandal here, but that is the initial tip that tipped the auditor off that sort of opened up the investigation into welfare spending was his um, his expenditures to this wrestler. Anything else you need to add about the DiBiase's, uh, Ted DiBiase and, and his sons? Anything else there you need to add or is that? Well, you know, they, um, Ted DiBiase, his, uh, character in the WWE was this person who would try to manipulate his opponents with his money. So if you go back and watch clips from like the eighties and nineties, he's kind of throwing money around and um, trying to bribe his, his opponents. And that's kind of how he 
would like win as matches and that kind of thing. Um, I'm learning a lot about the WWE for the first time as a result of telling the story. Um, but I just think the irony of um, like his evolution and and how he treated people during his time in the WWE and then eventually starting this Christian ministry, that is what hooked him up with the welfare department in the first place. And then they were getting all this money that could have been used to help people um, instead, really just paying themselves to do very little work uh, for the actual communities that they were supposed to be serving. Um, it's a very sad tale and it's, it's, it's pretty like Southern Gothic, really. Um, just the irony here. Who, who um, are Nancy and Zachary New? So Nancy New founded a nonprofit in the 90s that for over two decades were, was receiving some sort of grant from the Department of Human Services, usually every year. Um, her nonprofit is called Mississippi Community Education Center. And this is a uh, nonprofit that would provide like parenting classes to low-income families, um, usually like if you were court ordered to go to parenting class. It, you know, as a result of having some interaction with the child protection agency, um, and also like helping adults get their GED and things like that. Um, she also founded a very successful private school. And so she was kind of a darling of the GOP in Jackson, Mississippi, the, the leaders who really favored private education and this concept of taking public education dollars and putting them into private schools through vouchers and, you know, school choice policies. And so she was pretty, um, she was pretty ingrained with conservative uh, politics in Jackson. She was also really good friends with Phil Bryant's wife. Um, and so that's kind of her connection here. And then her son, Zach, worked at the nonprofit with, with her, was the uh, assistant director of the nonprofit. Now, in 2016, when John Davis became director, like I mentioned, they kind of changed how they were doing things within the TANF program. So instead of giving out small grants to organizations all across the state to provide, you know, like services for children, um, after school programs, you know, mentorship programs, these kinds of things, they just pushed the money out and we're talking tens of millions of dollars to two nonprofits and Nancy News nonprofit was selected to be one of those. They didn't go through any kind of official bid process or, or like formal application process. And so it, it becomes pretty clear why Nancy ended up getting that contract because of her connections. Uh, say more, if you would, uh, how deep does it appear, based on your reporting, uh, was Governor uh, Phil Bryant, former Governor Phil Bryant? So we uncovered text messages back in April that show sort of how he was communicating with the welfare director. And he would um, he was careful about how he worded things, but he would text on several occasions that we found he would text the welfare director, like, can we help these guys out? Let's say an organization was wanting a TANF grant and they didn't get it. He could text the welfare director and say, can we help these guys out? And the welfare director would say, and I'm talking about John Davis, would say, yes, like I'll, I'll send them $100,000 tomorrow. Right. And so that kind of shows how the agency was operating. Like the governor is not supposed to be engaged in RFPs or bid processes like that. Uh, the governor is not supposed to be able to just tell the welfare director to pay out an organization. So those text messages really did um, shed a light on how that part of the agency was operating. 
um, um, he, you know, Phil Bryant oversaw the welfare department. That's how the hierarchy is in Mississippi. And so he directs the, he, he appoints the director and has like pretty great control over how the welfare agency operates and what policies it chooses to implement. And, um, I think that as far as the purchases that we know that are part of the scandal, Phil Bryant's closest connection that we've seen is the purchases that the welfare department made on behalf of Brett Favre. So we have communication between Phil Bryant and Brett Favre where Brett Favre is offering the governor, <clears throat> he's offering the governor's stock in Prevacus, uh, this company that ended up receiving $2 million in welfare funds in exchange for his help, or he is, um, you know, asking the governor if he can find any way to, to find any more money for this company. And then two days after Phil Bryant leaves office, he agrees by text message that we have to accept stock in that company. So this is the way that they were communicating uh, that sort of sheds a light on Phil Bryant's involvement in how welfare was spent in Mississippi. And moreover, um, and some of your reporting that um, you you had mentioned that the former governor Bryant over 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 uh, saw social services. Um, that department was also used as a partisan wedge issue, was it not? I mean, a well, partisan wedge tool, I should say, that it, it penalized people who were members of the Democratic Party as well. Is that correct? Yeah, we did some original reporting that uh, showed that there was an allegation from a non one of the nonprofits, not Nancy's, but the other one that was receiving all this money, uh, that a local lawmaker had come to her and told her to fire the um, one of their employees who happened to be the wife of the Democratic candidate for governor that year. And another uh, defendant in the civil case came forward, uh, Teddy DiBiase, the, the wrestler's son, and said that he actually witnessed Governor Phil Bryant direct John Davis to cut funding to one of the nonprofits because that nonprofit was seen as being a supporter of the Democratic candidate for governor that year. And this is 2019 that we're talking about. Now, um, in terms of Mississippi's current governor, Tate Reeves, does he have any role uh, in, in this in any, in any way in, based on your reporting? We did a story a couple months ago where we showed that there were some text messages between John Davis and his deputy where he was directing his deputy to find uh, $2 million for one of the nonprofits so that it could pay out a contract with a, uh, a fitness trainer, like a, a this guy who was putting on boot camp style fitness classes. And this was um, someone that Tate Reeves had done classes with. And when the director asked his deputy to find the money, he said that he needed it for the lieutenant governor's fitness issue. So he was calling it the lieutenant governor's project. And the lieutenant governor at the time was Tate Reeves. So we've looked into that expenditure and um, using that text have sort of asked the question, you know, is Tate Reeves, was Tate Reeves inspiring this payment? that is now being questioned in this civil suit that the state is bringing against this fitness trainer, as well as, uh, you know, dozens of other people. <clears throat> We've also um, drawn the connection between Tate Reeves and USM uh, because there are many 
Tate Reeves donors who sit on the USM athletic board. University of Southern Mississippi, correct? That's right. The, the university where the volleyball stadium was built. So we don't know, we don't have anything to suggest that he, you know, was involved in, in the volleyball purchase, but he did make the attorney who brought the civil suit take the volleyball stadium out of the civil suit before filing it. And so we've questioned why he has what what he it appears to be uh, why he has protected the University of Southern Mississippi from being sued in this civil suit, even though it received one of the largest um, expenditures out of temporary assistance for needy families during this time with the volleyball stadium. And we've found that, you know, he does have many donors who who uh, are connected to the athletic foundation at USM. And so we just, and, and they fired that attorney, by the way, um, right after he filed subpoenas on the USM athletic foundation for communication related to the stadium. And so we've, we've asked the question of, you know, is this like, the, the fox guarding the hen house kind of thing? Or, you know, it, can we trust that the governor who oversees the Department of Human Services, which is bringing the suit, is going to aggressively attempt to claw back this money from people that he might be politically connected to? Now, one of the things that struck me in, in reading some of the reporting that you've done, uh, there were a number of people, uh, some of the key people that we've t- talked about previously, that some expressed uh, discomfort with misusing federal dollars um, through text messages. But it also appears while there were these flashing caution lights rather than a stop signal, the process kept going. Any thoughts on how that was possible? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. I think you're talking about a story that I just published on Saturday where Brett Favre was talking to Nancy New, the nonprofit founder, about USM being quote unquote scared to death about taking this grant money. You know, they had taken grant money in the past uh, from this nonprofit, but not in the amount of four or five million dollars, right? And so they were they were apprehensive about taking that kind of grant money for something like building a volleyball stadium that, you know, to the average person probably doesn't sound like the right thing to do. And so he was describing this apprehension to Nancy New, and in in describing this, he was sort of uh, give um, making recommendations on how they might be able to get around this. Like, could they give the money to Brett Favre, and then Brett Favre gives the money to the volleyball stadium, so that you know we can separate the grant being issued to the construction being done as far as possible, because there is a prohibition in federal regulation on using this money for construction, right? So how do you use the money for construction without making it look like it's for construction? You have to pass it through multiple people, right? And so that's kind of how the the discussion was was happening about how they were going to do this. But I do want to note that I did think it was interesting that Initially, the commitment from DHS to the volleyball stadium was a $4 million verbal commitment from John Davis. At some point, the the grant grew to $5 million because that's what they ended up receiving in November, December of 2017. So at some point after the first meeting in July of 2017, the number grew by a million dollars and 
in a text that Brett Favre sent to Nancy around the time that it was getting approved, he expressed that he knew that a million of those dollars had to go to upgrades to the basketball coliseum on campus and half a million to the university's maintenance fund. So let's break this out. So they're apprehensive about taking the money until it grows by a million dollars for other university projects, and then it gets accepted. And I think that that's a really interesting new nugget that needs to be explored more. Is it the case that they were apprehensive about taking the grant money until they got something out of it themselves? That's kind of what it appears to be. And let me just say for the record that, um, get my numbers correct on this, that um, Davis has pled guilty and he was he's already been sentenced to 32 years facing a, an additional 16 and he is cooperating with um, federal authorities. Is that correct? So I think that that has been misconstrued a little bit. Um, his the recommendation for his sentence, uh, which I don't think we're going to know what his real sentence is until after the investigation concludes. Um, his the real recommendation is that he serve his sentence in federal uh, in the federal case, and then there's not going to be any state time added to that. And so I think we're looking at you know no more than ten years in federal prison. I would suspect um, on these charges, and he will spend his entire sentence in federal prison. And that was the that was the main thing that he and other defendants in this case have um, really prioritized in their plea deals. They don't want to go to parchment. They don't want to go to MDOC facilities. They want to, they want to serve their time in federal prison. So I think they might even take a, a worse deal time-wise to make sure that they were in federal prison. And that's what both Dave, John Davis and Nancy New ended up getting um, through their plea deals. Now, has Nancy New been sentenced? Nancy New has not been sentenced. Um, but you are primarily the poverty reporter for Mississippi Today. So I want to turn our attention uh, to the impact that this has on um, Mississippi's most vulnerable population. You know, it, it's been said by many analysts that Mississippi is the nation's poorest state. Um, can you put that in context for us, please? Yeah, typically people are looking at the poverty rate and Mississippi's poverty rate is almost 20%. So almost one in five people in the state live in poverty. And, um, you know, I think it fluctuates from year to year, but most years we're, we're at the bottom of that list. And there are other factors like, um, you know, annual um, median income and things like this, but we're generally, we generally fall at the bottom of those lists that indicate, you know, our, our financial picture, especially for, for people and not businesses, right? Mm -hmm. Now, you, you probably uh, don't have uh, data to, to uh, support my next question, but I'm wondering if you have any anecdotal evidence, whether there were any parents uh, who may have been forced to quit their jobs because funds for daycare, for example, may not be available. Anything, any, any stories like that that you may have. We've done a lot of stories about the child care development fund. That's the block grant that's similar to TANF. It, um, can, the states can ha have pretty good discretion on how to spend that money. But um, the block, the, the, uh, the child care development fund is used to support vouchers for, 
for low-income working parents to put their kids into childcare. And from 2018, I'm sorry, from 20, uh, about 2013, 2014 to about 2018, for a five-year period, there was not a single new childcare voucher issued in the state of Mississippi. This is relatively during the, the period of this scandal, right? And, um, you know, we've been so focused on TANF and, you know, the national narrative um, and the stories have been focused on TANF, but there is this whole other story in the child care development fund that is really untapped. And I've written a lot about it. There was a period in last year um, where a whole bunch of people, like thousands of parents were kicked off of the, uh, the voucher. And that had to do with redetermination during the pandemic. And, uh, you know, I don't know that there's data tracking how many of those parents lost their jobs, but I've talked to many. So anecdotally, I know that that is an effect of um, losing the childcare voucher is that you can't go to work anymore. So that that's a huge problem. And childcare is also something that we could have supported with temporary assistance for needy families dollars that we did not. Mm-hmm. Um, did I hear you correctly? Did you say like, was it a three year period where there was no no new um, uh, people to qualify um, for, for that for, the, for that type of subsidy. Five year period. Five years. Not, I'm sorry. Five not year a period. single new voucher issued. So there were other there were people who stayed on the program. There was a program where you know there was a population, but as people fell off the program because they aged out or they you know their income grew or whatever, there was no new people added to the program. And I don't think we have an answer for how all that money was then spent if it wasn't going to vouchers. So that is a huge, huge scandal that hasn't really been very well explored. I've written about it, but it hasn't been, you know, put on a national platform. Uh, one, one, one of the pieces related to that, um, and you may be, you may be familiar with this. I'm also wondering and this is not only a public policy issue for me, it's also a moral issue. Were families separated to your knowledge because of a lack of funds to subsidize housing that placed children in foster care? So I know that um, the vast majority of child separations, family separations in this state and this country are um, a result of neglect, not abuse, right? And Um, neglect is often just a residual effect of poverty, right? No lights or water in the house, or you lose your, you lose your house, you lose a roof over your head. You know, there are stipulations like a child, there has to be a bed for a child in a home, right? What happens when you can't afford a bed? And so when you think about the loss of dollars because of this TANF scandal, you can't really separate that story from the story about the foster care system. I talked to a guy when I went to Hattiesburg to do the story about the volleyball stadium. We kind of went around the community and just talked to people that we found. And he told us that he had lost his daughter about five years before that, uh, taken from CPS. He was homeless at the time. And the judge told him that he needed to get housing in order to get his daughter back. And he went to the local organization that provides this kinds of assistance, the kind of assistance that could have been supported with these TANF dollars. And they turned him away and said they didn't have anything for him. And he never got his daughter back. 
So that story, I think, especially the fact that I found him while doing the story about the volleyball stadium, it just, it brings it all into perspective. I think it's the, it, a, a totally tragic example of the human toll of this scandal. Yeah. I, forgive me, but it just seems unconscionable taking your earlier statistics if 20% of the population uh, is below the poverty line and you take almost $100 million out over a given period of time, uh, it just seems unconscionable that um, that's got to have some kind of impact, not only on low-income people, but that's got to impact the uh, the economy of Mississippi in some way. Have you any, any thoughts on that? Absolutely. Like if we're using that money to just pad the pockets of people who are already wealthy, then that money isn't having the effect of going back out into the economy through, you know, groceries and goods and services. I mean, that is a good point. I think it's a little bit, you know, it's, that's an economist's viewpoint. And I've obviously been more focused on the, um, the human impact on people living in poverty who were, who missed out on these opportunities or really had these opportunities robbed from them um, that this program is supposed to provide. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's what I have to say about that. <laughs> well, I'm also wondering, uh, because TANF uh, is, is the result of, um, uh, I guess, welfare to work that, that, that was sort of popularized in, in the 90s. I mean, Bill Clinton famously said that the end of big government is over. Uh, that provides more leeway to states. But I'm wondering, over time, given this more leeway to states, has this system become easier to manipulate, which led to the abuse in Mississippi? Absolutely. I mean, that is, that's what happened here. Um, in the 90s, when TANF was created, it replaced the former, former entitlement program aid to families with dependent children. It was an entitlement before TANF. Like it was an entitlement like SNAP today is or or Medicaid, right? If you qualify for it, you get it. When it became TANF, it turned into a block grant. States had broad discretion on how to spend the funds. They were allowed to put very strict um, restrictions on getting TANF cash assistance. The program over time, it it wasn't a cash assistance program anymore. It, it isn't. And so the welfare check that people think about um, or that might be close, most closely re related or associated with TANF, that's not what the program is anymore. And I think that what happened is as the program evolved, people fell off, first of all, roles, uh, caseloads just dropped, you know, dramatically and gradually over time to where the program was just kind of forgotten, right? People weren't receiving the money through cash assistance and there wasn't a strong advocacy base around this program. And, you know, a lot of parents, I think the dollar amount of the welfare check didn't grow for 20 years in Mississippi. So in 2020, when this scandal broke, the, the welfare check was just $170 a month for a family of three, which can be very, I mean, that's, that can be, that can really make a difference for families who are making ends meet. But at the same time, if you have to jump through a million hoops and your application gets lost and you're calling and they're not answering the phone and it's just such a hassle, a lot of people are just going to say, forget it. You know, the, the vast majority of applications, because we only approve about 2% 
during the scandal, we only approved about 2% of people who were applying for cash welfare assistance. A lot of the other applications that we're talking about were just abandoned by people because the amount of money that they were applying for wasn't worth the hassle in some cases. And so as the program just became sort of um, obsolete over time, we were still getting all these many millions of dollars from the feds every year, right? And so they had to find some way to spend the money. And I think that's kind of where like that free money concept in their minds came from. They were just shelling it out because they they didn't feel like, you know, they didn't feel like it was going to be spent on people anyway. And so why not just give it to our friends and family is kind of how I think they felt about it. There's also... Uh that we haven't discussed yet is sort of an, uh, in my view, at least an intangible impact. Uh, I, I know that if you have a, let's say you have um, a court ordered appearance to get parenting classes. Uh, I'm assuming some of these places will shut down. So what happens to a person who has a mandate court ordered to appear to, to appear at a parenting class and there are no, those services aren't available. What happens to them in person then? That's a really good question. I actually ran into one of those people when the scandal first broke and the local family's first office, that's what Nancy knew was calling her program, had closed. I went to the office on the day that it closed and I met a woman who was outside. She was kind of like yelling and panicked. And I kind of went up to her and was like, what's going on? She's like, I'm here for class today and it's not open. And no one told me that it was going to be closed today. And I've got to get my kids back. I've been court ordered here. So now I don't know what I'm going to do. And she kind of, I, I never exchanged numbers with her. She kind of like hopped in her friend's car after she said that to me and drove away. And I always wondered what happened. Like, where was she able to get the services? Did, was, was there another place offering the class or did it just, what I suspect happened is that it just pushed back the court proceedings and that it just made it harder and longer to get her kids back. And maybe she never did. I don't know. But, um, you know, the story about that man not being able to get housing, he just never got his kids back. That's the effect. And it's, it's, it's kind of unbelievable that that's how this works in America. Well, well, given some of your reporting, um, you know, you you mentioned over a five-year period, um, no, 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 there were no additions when people when people dropped off on housing. The 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 the, the story you told about the woman, um, as well as the man in his housing situation, um, it's hard to it's it's, it's hard to believe uh, that these are that, that these are isolated. That, that, that there are people, I guess, in effect, suffering in silence because of um, malfeasance at the highest level of government. If I can go out and, and find someone who has been that dramatically impacted by these systems, just, just in a day of going out and finding people, like that, I think, just goes to show how many people are impacted. It's not hard to find people who are impacted by this. It's not f hard to find people who have lost a job or, you know, had to drop out of school or, I mean, it, the the scenarios are endless in terms of what the decisions that people have had to make that they've been forced to make because of the state's mismanagement of 
the pr very programs that are supposed to provide opportunity to people and help them find economic mobility, for example. I talked to a woman who I actually met at the family's first office. This is the program through which most of the misspending occurred. I met her um, in a classroom where she was getting help with writing a resume. And I, I walked up to her, I'd never met her before. And I kind of, you know, went up to her and I, and I, I asked her, you know, what was going on and why she was here. And um, it was supposed to be like the, the poster child story, right? About what this office is doing for people. And she just looked up to me and she just started weeping. She just started crying because someone actually was asking her what she was going through and why she was there in a genuine way and not just in a, oh, we're just, we're going to rewrite your resume and we'll get you another job. I mean, she was just going through it. And she told me that at one point she went to this, um, one of these programs was offering a baby shower for single mothers, right? And she had gone through this program. Um, I think it might've been a Medicaid related program. And at the end of the program, she was supposed to get this baby shower. She was pregnant at the time. And she had decided at some point prior to this to get married to her, uh, the, the father of her ch child. And they pulled the baby shower. For, she couldn't get, she couldn't partake in the baby shower anymore because she, now she was married. Now she's not a single mom. I mean, it's just the, the, the examples of how ridiculous it is when the state tries to interject itself into people's lives like this, there, the stories are endless. Well, see, on that that story though, that that raises um, all it's tragic but comedic irony, in that if you decide to get married, I mean the state's all over that, but we're looking at um, what roughly a hundred million dollars where the state looked the other way. So I mean, look look at how punitive that is. If you misuse your EBT card, the state's all over that. But yet we have. $100 million of missing funds, and, and no no one takes accountability. You know, in 2017, during the legislative session, so just a few months before this money was committed to the volleyball stadium, the legislature passed a law called the HOPE Act. And the HOPE Act was specifically a law to address welfare fraud. Um, in 2014, we also uh, passed a law that included drug testing for TANF applicants that they would have to pay for, by the way. Um, I'm looking up the name of the HOPE Act because it's so ironic. Um, but it was essentially, it's the act to restore hope, opportunity, and prosperity for everyone, HOPE Act. And it was a, um, a bill to, to tackle fraud within DHS and Medicaid services. Um, and so it, it created additional barriers and additional monitoring and additional eligibility um, uh, loophole, uh, I'm sorry, like barriers to people applying for these programs. In the same year that the state transferred $5 million in temporary assistance for needy families money to a volleyball stadium, building a volleyball stadium at University of Southern Mississippi. I mean, they're so focused on making sure that people in poverty don't get a dime more than what they are legally eligible to receive. And yet Brett Favre can inspire 
8 million in payments to his pet projects. I think that there's a huge conversation around deservingness that um, is sort of baked into the story. So, I mean, it is really true that the state of Mississippi finds it more offensive to give direct assistance to people in poverty than to waste millions on people who are already wealthy. And I think that there's this idea that people in poverty are not deserving and people who are already wealthy are, you know, they're our heroes. They're people who need to be uplifted. And, you know, the wrestlers and Brett Favre, you know, they've done what they need to do to prove their worth to the state. But it's, it's feels like there's almost nothing that a person in poverty can do to prove their worth to the state. This may seem like a non sequitur, uh, but I'm wondering, as I, as I read your reporting, I couldn't help but think about if you have any thoughts on whether the Supreme Court decision and Dobbs versus Jackson overturned Roe v. Wade, does that have any bearing going forward on this welfare scandal? I talked to the woman who wrote the bill in Mississippi that made its way to the Supreme Court that had the effect of overturning Roe v. Wade. And she told me that, you know, we had a very frank conversation because I've been covering these programs, these programs that, um, you know, in most cases, like single mothers are the, are the primary client, right? Uh, welfare, food assistance, childcare, these programs that um, help low-income people in Mississippi. And I was telling her, you know, I've covered these programs and she, she actually cut me off. She was like, they're horrible. They're horrible. And I'm like, why not fix the programs first? And then, you know, maybe the abortion question is not as much of an issue anymore. Um, you know, uh, try to be pre- preventative. She told me that she, it was not lost on her, you know, the impact of, of what she had brought forth in the legislature and that she, we needed to take care of women now. Um, a big um solution that state leaders are putting their weight behind in this time now following the the fall of Roe v. Wade are these private nonprofits that are usually called crisis pregnancy centers um, that I'm sure you've um, done some reading up on. But these are centers that kind of bill themselves as places where pregnant women can get assistance, but they don't necessarily have good funding structures or like robust services. So you go there, you're not going to get medical care, for example, and you're not even necessarily going to get like real assistance, like energy assistance or rental assistance or anything like that. You might get a car seat or you might get some diapers or something like that, but you're not going to get robust supports. And the legislature and Tate Reeves, our governor now, have uh, given great tax credits to these centers and we have not seen at this point a, an accountability system put in place for there to be any transparency about how these programs are operating or how these centers are helping women. You know, what are their outcomes? How many women are they helping? What are they actually providing to women? And so I think there is, based on this story about welfare spending, I think that we can look to these private nonprofits, again, same, same funding structure, private nonprofits were how all of the TANF money was misspent um, and just look and, and make sure that they're doing what they say they're doing. But I think that there is a concern there that um, this could turn into another um, 
scenario where public money in some cases is being shielded from public view and you know what's going to what's the result of that well i mean b- based on this conversation what you just outlined sounds to me as though once again uh, low income people are the last individuals to get the benefit of the doubt in the state's eyes and you have the state 180 degrees to the opposite of those who are, who have been funded to provide the service, they get more than the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, and I it's also sort of it's it's kind of unbelievable. These crisis pregnancy centers they're kind of a, they're kind of a coalition, so they're all um, kind of housed under one umbrella. And if you look at where they're located across the state, there is not there are not any of these centers in the Delta, for example, which is the primarily majority black part of the state. And so when you think about the state putting its weight behind this coalition of centers that don't even serve the blackest part of the state, I mean, I just don't know like how else I'm supposed to take that other than um, a disinvestment in people who have been historically disadvantaged and probably need you know, the support the most. I also know that you have been active um, through the Back Channel series uh, by way of uh, video webinars, answering the public's questions. And so what has been the public reaction to the stories you've been writing? So I think that we should all be having conversations about what is the best way for us to serve people in poverty. I think that like we can have debates over what um, is most effective at drawing people out of poverty. If, if we don't think cash assistance is effective, you know, there's a huge sentiment among conservative, um, the conservative population that cash assistance, something like those direct supports traps people in poverty, creates dependence on the government. And I think that, um, I'm, I don't think that the data has, has borne that out, but there are other ways to uh, to address poverty, you know, through work supports like childcare and um, transportation, right? And these things support what we, what conservatives want to see, which is more people getting to work. Um, there are effective things that we can do, but we can all agree, no matter what your politics are or what your ideology is about, you know, what the government's role should be in solving poverty, almost everyone can agree that this money should not be going to things like building a volleyball stadium and paying professional wrestlers to deliver motivational speeches, right? So I think that that's like been a real big silver lining in this story is that um, it really does bring everyone, regardless of your political leanings together um, in, in saying that we're not in favor of this. Uh, and, and finally, um, and, and many, myself included, uh, applaud uh, the work that you've been doing in Mississippi today to uncover this. Talk about how challenging it has been as an investigative reporter to to really uncover what's been going on with this story. Well, I think back on my inquiries to the Department of Human Services in the 2018-19 timeframe before this scandal broke open. And of course, I have a lot of regrets over, 
you know, not seeing things or not pushing harder um, on certain areas, but it it was so difficult. I mean, the gaslighting and the sort of um, the, the clouding of facts uh, out of the department made it very difficult to get any concrete information about what we were doing in these programs. So I started really sending records requests. Um, I mean, starting back in 2017, but really sending more and more records requests to the Department of Human Services in 2018, trying to get expenditure reports and invoices, you know, anything that would show how we were actually spending the money, not, not vague reports that reported spending in different categories, but like, what were we actually doing with the money and who are we helping? Where are the outcome reports that show how many people received what services? I also requested at one point the list of reasons for denial, because as I said, only about 2% of TANF applications were being approved. And so what were the reasons that people were getting denied? And they gave me some data that at one point they had to come back and say, oh, no, we were we were reporting it wrong. So so disregard what we sent you. It's not accurate. So it was just kind of like every step of the way there was some barrier or some way that they were withholding information from me. At one point, they started routing all my communication through the attorney general's office. So I would email, you know, an employee of DHS to ask a question or whatever, and I'd get a response from the attorney general's office that was like almost uh, an an effort to intimidate, right? Um, You know, there were, there have been times where even politicians have gone on social media to talk, to talk about what we're doing, try to cast shade on, um, you know, our understanding of things or, or the facts that we're putting out. And so it's just been, I mean, it has been very difficult, but I'm, I'm glad I've stuck with it because I think all of the information that I've now been able to uncover through text messages and, and other records has really um, justified why I was looking into this in the first place, right? And really shown the public, really peeled back the curtain on how government works in Mississippi. Anna Wolf, I, I want to thank you so much for joining us today on the Public Rally. You have done all of us who claimed the fourth estate proud and do this investigative reporting. And, and, and in your last answer, you also showed probably why Brett Favre was concerned if the press was going to find out about it. So thank you so much for joining us today on The Public Morality. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Rally on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the Pullman Corrality at their studios. The Pullman Corrality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Pullman Morality, I'm Byron Williams.